Father, we do long to see Christ. We pray as we look at these verses together this morning, you, would, you wouldn't just give us a better grasp of the passage, but that we might see him and love him all the more. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, receiving this was one of the proudest moments of my life. Um, it was a rugby award I received as a 15-year-old for the Colts Bees. Um, I was the player of the season. We were the team of the season, which possibly made me the best player in the school at the time. I don't think so, but slightly tongue-in-cheek. Something to cherish, maybe something to be proud of, maybe something to perpetually display in the cabinet at home, perhaps, something to fall back on when life is falling apart, maybe. It's funny, isn't it, that the kind of things in life that we take confidence in, the things that we're proud of, it'll be different for each of us, and those things will be profoundly shaped by our culture, by living where we do in, in this place, by living when we do at this time. So, what about you? What are, your, um, what are your trophies? Maybe maybe achievements along the way, maybe experiences, maybe letters after your name, maybe your family, maybe, maybe your job, maybe your looks, maybe your postcode. What sort of things do we have in the display cabinet of our hearts, if I can put it that way? What things really matter to us? What things make us feel good about ourselves? And then if we, if we translate that across to the world of faith as we stand before God, what are the kind of things we're trusting in, taking confidence in, and proud of when it comes to our relationship with him? What do we really think matters? Because, because as Paul will show us in these verses for this morning, if we take confidence in the wrong things, we'll find that is completely disastrous. So disastrous, he will speak in very strong terms about them. He, he will describe the kind of confidence that he could have in his upbringing, in his bloodline, in his law-keeping, in his zeal. And he will describe it very graphically in 3 verse 8. It's offensive to him. The translation we have is garbage. I'd love to speak to the translation committee because I'm not sure we use garbage in the UK, but anyway. It's more than that. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of repulsive thing you might step in at the park and have to clean your shoes before you get home. That's the strength of the word that he's using. The, the good things from Paul's past are now offensive, disgusting to him as a place to find confidence before God. Why, why does he use such strong language? Well, because what you have confidence in before God matters. False confidence before God is offensive. And so we'll see in these verses that Paul longs for us to take confidence in the right things in things that matter. Because there are so many people who take confidence in wrong things. 
So what's the answer? What are we to have in the display cabinet of our hearts? What is to be there as we stand before God? The answer is Christ. It's Jesus. It's only him. It can only be him. He is all we need. He is the only thing that matters. Which is why when we start off our passage 3 verse 1, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And we don't bat an eyelid. We've seen it week by week. He, he's telling us again, put on your joy glasses, friends. See the world in terms of what Jesus has done and in terms of what Jesus is doing. And, and we've seen with Paul that when he puts on those joy glasses, then, then prisons and opposition and personal suffering are all things that pearl into comparison. The little things are overwhelmed by the big thing of joy in Christ. Many of you will know I've been away for the past couple of weeks. Um, I've come back without an accent, but I've been to America for a couple of weeks. Um, and, And there were 16 of us from all over the place, kind of joining together in a sort of conference learning community thing. And it's been my experience and my real privilege to see some of this rejoicing in Christ despite opposition in the flesh. That kind of Philippians thing that Paul is talking about. I've seen it in real people. Let me tell you about a few of them. Think of a pastor from northern Nigeria whose whose church has been burned down four times. Extraordinary. Think of a brave and a funny little lady working in Thailand with children whose parents are working in the sex trade, longing to, to break the cycle, longing to teach them of Christ. See, I think of a pastor faithfully ministering in Vietnam. And in years gone by, Bibles were illegal in Vietnam. So what they would do is they would write out passages. They would split out the passages between them. They would write them out on bits of paper. They would memorize them. But people would, would steal the bits of paper and then make them pay to have them back again so they could memorize them to keep Scripture in their hearts. I think of a Kenyan lady. Um, who who married a Christian guy but married across tribal lines and so her parents didn't come to the wedding. I could go on and on and on, but humbling, genuine experiences of people who, who put on joy glasses, who see the world in terms of what Christ has done and in terms of what he is doing and and so trust him. Genuine examples of finding joy in him rather than in comfort. And so at the beginning of the section 3 verse 1, Paul says, make Jesus, friends, make Jesus the supreme object of your delight. And then before we've even drawn breath, verse 2, he's he's warning us about more opponents in Philippi. He says, watch out for these dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And Paul, what's going on? You were just telling us to rejoice and suddenly we're here. What's he doing? Is he defending himself? Is he using his apostolic credentials to silence those who who don't agree with him? I take it he's not defending himself. He's defending the Philippians' joy. And so he uses these opponents as examples. And he says, take your eyes off self. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and we who put no confidence in the flesh. He is very strong with these people. 
They think they are on the inside. Paul says you are on the outside. Because, because at the heart of their arguments, they say God is happy with them. They say they are righteous because of their performance, because of what they've done. This isn't something secondary. We've already had opponents of Paul in chapter 1. Do you remember? He was happy for them to keep ministering. It was just out of wrong motives that they were speaking their message. Here Paul says this is not just harmless. This is not just their take on things. This is not just their way of seeing it. This is dangerous. He says, watch out. Probably what's going on is that these Jewish false teachers... Um, We're saying that belief in Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus something else. In this case, circumcision, it seems. And the thing is, whenever Jesus plus is around, it's disastrous because it says that Jesus only is not enough. Not enough for salvation. It says what what is needed is, is not the forgiveness and grace and mercy that he gives us, but something else, something we must do on top of Jesus only. Which means at the end of the day, our confidence ends up lying in what we do, in the flesh, in themselves. Which is why he is so pointed and offensive in his description of them. Verse 2, to describe them as dogs is a huge irony. It was a term of derision from Jews for Gentiles. It said you were unclean, and Paul here flips it on his head and says, you're the dogs. You are the ones who are unclean. As you trust in circumcision, you are the outsiders. Or evildoers, they are those who are damaging faith. They say Jesus is not enough. They say the cross is not sufficient. God's plan to deal with a broken world, to deal with evil, is not enough. And so they are the evildoers, Paul says. Or mutilators of the flesh is probably a reference to circumcision, but but it's got overtones as well of pagan worship. As they would literally do that to themselves physically mutilate themselves in the worship of their gods. They think they're on the inside. Paul says, you're on the outside. And when we think God is happy with us, and when we think we are righteous, when we think we're on the inside because of what we do, because of our performance, because of external things, so it's going to rob us of any real joy, which is why verse 2 comes after verse 1. When our joy is about what we have done or what we have not done rather than what he has done, joy will be elusive, up and down and hard to grab a hold of. And Our joy is rocked around like a tiny balsa wood boat on the brutal crashing waves of life. And we have no joy. And I will wager you know something of that. And so you see verse 2, Paul's boast is in Christ. His joy is firm and steadfast and lasting. And he had many things, he said, that he could be proud of. If it was about externals, Paul would win hands down. He had so much to swagger in. He had so many potential trophies that he could trust in. Verse 5 to 6. You see, he was born into a Jewish family, into the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. No doubt he could trace his family history right the way back. He was a strict Pharisee following all the laws to the letter. He had a zeal and a love for the truth, which meant he even persecuted Christians 
Who he was and what Paul did was exemplary. He had so many trophies that he could fall back on. One person said this. He said, Paul was fanatical. He had done everything the law required of him. He had all the badges. He could count all the stripes. He could tick all the boxes. But, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Compared to Christ, the old things, it's as if he's... It's as if he stepped in something at the park and needs to wash his shoes. And what Paul wants is for us to follow him. To do away with, to count as lost those things that we might find confidence in. Wrong confidence. And simply to look to Christ and say, you see how verse 8 continues, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He's given up his pedigree. He's done away with the trophies, his performance, but he has Christ. He has a righteousness that comes from Christ. And so you see, Paul says, trusting in the wrong things for our righteousness is disastrous. Which means the question we need to ask is, what are those things for you and for me, potentially good things, that we might find wrong confidence in? And so this week I asked a few people from Maudlam Road. Uh, I picked on my home group. Thank you if you got back to me. I spoke to a few other people as well. And I asked on some of the good things, the externals that we wrestle with, seeking to find confidence in, where we think we can almost earn a righteousness before God. Here are the results. These are anonymous. For some people, it was trusting in, in busyness and activity and filling up your week and and success, and and perhaps fruitfulness in ministry. Serving others, being on rotors, keeping busy, playing a part, bringing friends, that kind of stuff. If I'm doing well with those things, then I'm pretty sure God is happy with me at the moment. For other people, it's a sort of trusting in the networks, the kind of groups that we're a part of, maybe the church that you go to, or the church that you don't go to, Maybe it's the kind of summer camps that you go on or went on. Maybe it's the kind of friendship groups that you're a part of. But being on the inside, if I'm in this crowd, then I'm pretty sure God is happy with me. I'm pretty sure I'm righteous. For some, it was how admired and appreciated you are by other people. Sort of horizontal affirmation. If those people are happy with me, I'm pretty sure God is too. For others, and this was interesting, it's come up more than once as well, it's sort of trusting in the fact that we can tick a box that says, I am sound. So it's systems, it's ideas, it's doctrine. I know I believe the right kind of things, rather than the one to whom the doctrine points to, rather than Christ. For others, this was very honest, it was trusting in your performance. It was saying, well, I'm, I'm better than them. At least I'm not as bad as them. Or it's the 
not your performance, but the performance of your children. At least my kids aren't as bad as their kids. So I wonder if there's some homework this week. Maybe, maybe actually, if you can, write down a physical list of the kind of things you might find a wrong righteousness, confidence, trust in. And then actively decide to count them as garbage. Grab a friend, grab a spouse, grab someone who knows you and loves you, and with Paul, count them together as disgusting and offensive if we seek to find our righteousness in them rather than in him, the righteousness he gives us in Christ. And and pray for each other and pray for us as a church that we might... We might know that true righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that he gives to us rather than the one that we try and earn ourselves. And if you're struggling, if you're thinking, I don't know the answer to this, next question, please. Maybe think about the kind of thing, if it was taken away from you, how would you feel? If I stopped serving in this way, if I was unable to do these things, if I couldn't tick that box anymore, then where does that leave me? And we're sort of, the rug is pulled out. Maybe that's something that you are trusting in unhelpfully. Again, on my time away, I heard a number of stories. This this was a very large church I was um, privileged to attend for a few weeks. Um, And there are a number of cross-cultural missionaries whom they sent, who spent decades abroad, And stories coming back that they began to realize their identity, their self-worth, their esteem was tied up in a position, in kind of missionary big M even. Their righteousness, in a sense, was coming from what they did. And when, for various reasons, it was taken away from them, they didn't know quite where they stood anymore. They found themselves in all kinds of trouble, and they realized the whole basis had been on what they were doing for him rather than what he had done for them. So maybe ask the question, what happens if it's all taken away? Or what do I not want to be taken away? Because that is the thing I'm trusting in. Of course, it's easier, isn't it? It, It's easier to, to trust in our trophies and the things that we've done and earned and and made and produced ourselves and in ticking boxes and in comparing ourselves with others because generally you'll find someone that you are better than but then perhaps somebody who's better than you so it's always this trouble with joy Paul urges us take your eyes off yourself but more than that fix your eyes on Christ second point fix your eyes on him and run the race for him let me read verse 10 to 14 again He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus 
So remember, he already knows Christ, verse 8. That's already there. But do you see verse 10 and 11? It's a striking ambition for his life. He, he wants to know Christ more and more. I wonder if that's something we could say. In the Bible, a knowledge of God is more than simply a, a collector of facts or of information or of intelligence or, or, or knowing him as a casual acquaintance but to know him better and better and more and more and a deeper and deeper level, burying down into who God is. Getting to know him, his, his beauty, his character, his kindness, his patience, his compassion, to, to delight in him, to know his goodness. He wants to know him more and more. And, and do you see what that looks like? As verse 10 continues, it's a surprise, isn't it? He wants to know the life-bringing, heart-melting, transformative power of the resurrection at work in his life. The, the power that brought back Jesus from the dead is the power that we have in us to know him better and better, to live for him each day. But it's more than that. It continues knowing Christ and also participating in his sufferings. It's, it's the being prepared to daily die. It's, it's following in the footsteps of Jesus, going his way, whatever that might mean, whatever that means in terms of suffering. Each morning choosing to put to death self, to put on Christ, living as one of his, and so verse 11 being raised with him. I find these verses awkward. I find them challenging. I'm struck by how single-minded Paul is. It's there in verse 10 and verse 11. It's also verse 13, one thing I do, he says. It makes me think I need to prioritize more. Don't you think that? To not be distracted. There are so many things we can do in life, so much you can fill your life with. And Paul says, here's what it looks like to be single-minded. And I look at my life and I look at my ambitions and my concerns and I can, I can tick the box and I can sing the songs and we'll sing some songs in a bit. But is, is knowing Jesus really my main ambition? Really? It's easier to sing, isn't it, than to, to actually have that. What would my life actually say my ambitions were for someone looking in? When it, when it really comes down to it, I know the right answers. We all do. But really, what do our lives say they're about? It's a challenge. But there's hope as well, which is why I love verse 12. Paul's not there yet. He's not there. He's pressing on. He's a working progress. There's, there's his frustration. He's, he's keeping going with this ambition. Do you remember, we, um, we, we spoke at the start of the series about the importance of, of running the race. Remember my brother who was heading up to Inverness for a marathon? Well, so here again for Paul, I think this idea of running 
helps us as we think about the Christian life. It's a very forward-looking few verses. He says, I, I press on. I strain forwards. I, I'm looking at what lies ahead. It, it's, it's reaching forwards, not just bumbling along. Verse 12, Christ has put him in the starting blocks. Verse 13 and 14, he's going to keep running. He's going to keep pressing on towards the goal. He's going to keep going. He's not distracted by what's come so far, by his track record. I take it his, his pedigree, his background, his trophies. But he's keeping his eyes on the end, on the goal, on what's coming ahead, straining ahead. Which again, just a thing on the way past, it, it strikes me that a Christian should never really stop. Never really stop during the race. It, it's, it's running in the strength that he gives us. We saw that a couple of weeks ago from chapter 2. God equips us for the ministry he calls us to. But it's always plodding, always growing, always pressing on. It's easy when you've been around for a while to become a bit cynical and think, well, I'm okay because I've started the race. Or, or maybe just a bit sceptical and think, I'm always going to be wrestling with this sin or that sin, so I'm just not going to bother fighting it anymore. But it seems to me Paul is always looking ahead. Whether you've been a Christian for a week or a year or a lifetime, there's a sense in which we should always be dissatisfied. We'll see next week because we should be content, but this week we're going to be discontent with how we're doing with him at least. To put it another way, a mark of maturity for the believer is always to know that you're not mature. I read a fascinating um, account recently of an Australian minister guy who died a few years ago, some of you will know his name, a guy called John Chapman. He was an evangelist from Sydney, Chapo, um, he was known as. He was in his 80s at the time. And the thing that struck the author of this article was the humility of Chapo. He said this, he said, here's a minister with vast experience and huge wisdom. He's a godly man. But is there any hint of John sitting back and saying, I've made it? Not a bit continues in fact what struck, struck me most about John as I saw him this time were two things he said in casual conversation more than once when he answered a question he would preface it by saying you know that is something I'm still working on or I've got a lot more work to do on that he was answering questions about evangelism or what it means to live the Christian life a man who'd been a Christian for nearly 60 years but his posture was I'm still learning. Humility. There's a man who understands what Paul means when he says, I want to know Christ and I am pressing on to heaven. And so friends, keep running. Keep running towards the goal. What is the goal? Verse 14. I take it finally, it's Christ. Actually, he is what will make heaven so amazing. It's it's to have him now, to be in him now, to know him now, to increasingly know him now, to know the power of the resurrection, to live the daily life, the pattern of his death, to, to become like him now, but, but gloriously then to see him face to face, to be finished, to be taken heavenwards, to be perfected, to be perfectly in conformity with him then. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, 
I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise that you would You would help us to fix our eyes less on self and more on Christ. You would cause him to become more and more our treasure, more and more our boast, more and more the delight of our lives, the only one that we take take confidence in for our righteousness, that we would do away with trophies that we've made or clung on to, and that we might run for him, in him, to him, that you would help us to press on towards the goal, to win the prize for which you've called us, heavenwards, in him.